Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art camp in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, they tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs like PRIZE, a unique program for people who have been in recovery but have relapsed. Here, you won't have to start from step one. You'll build off the knowledge you've previously acquired in treatment and focus on the areas of your recovery that need improvement. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7 and is in network with most major insurance providers. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. The minute you would suggest there was anything that, that the virus could have been originating from um, a lab in people's minds that then got connected with it being deliberate and a weapon and really far out, you know. I think that sort of still sticks around, that people then have a hard time separating these two ideas of one being deliberate, which is not at all what we're talking about here, and one being uh, accidental. What we need now is for China to tell us how this virus got started. Like, you know, if they know, and I think they do, then the rest of the world needs to know as well so that we can prevent a repeat from happening, not necessarily in China, but other places. Because right now, I think the problem is that the world has demonstrated that we cannot trace the origins of a virus, even when there's a quite good chance of it coming from a lab. So this might incentivize other countries to also have their own research programs that are risky and in, in the knowledge that they won't be able to track down any leaks from the lab as long as they don't publish their viruses. So I think this sets a really dangerous precedent for the rest of the world. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. Since the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, the prevailing wisdom has been that the virus started in an animal and at some point jumped to humans. The idea that it might have escaped from a lab has been widely dismissed as conspiracy theory, partly because this was so easily conflated with false information and inflammatory rhetoric coming out of the Trump administration. But there are plenty of scientists and policy experts who take the so-called lab leak hypothesis quite seriously. And now that the volume has been lowered on some of Trump's more dangerous distortions, they're starting to talk about it. Two experts that have been talking about it all along are my guests on this episode. Dr. Alina Chan is a molecular biologist at the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, specializing in medical genetics, biochemistry, synthetic biology, and vector engineering. Last spring, she caused a stir when she wrote and uploaded a paper exposing holes in some of the animal theories and inviting further inquiry into a possible lab origin. 
My other guest, Dr. Philippa Lensos, is a biosecurity expert and senior research fellow at King's College London, where she studies global health and social medicine, as well as defense policy. Together, they talked with me about what we do and don't know about the origins of the virus, why it's important to know, and above all, why people have such a hard time separating the idea of a deliberately released bioweapon, which no serious person believes happened, with the idea of an unintentional lab spillover event, which is not uncommon and for which there's plenty of room for questions in this case. We spoke on February 1st. Dr. Alina Chan and Dr. Philippa Lensos, welcome to the Unspeakable podcast. Thank you. It's good to be with you. Yes, thanks for having us. Alina, you are a molecular biologist who specializes in gene therapy and cell engineering. Philippa, you are a social scientist who researches threats posed by biological agents, among other things. Um, I'm going to give what will probably be an overlong preamble here. Um, but I think it's important to explain why I wanted to have you two on the show. And then um, I'm going to hope to be quiet for most of it. We're going to explore a topic that, at least from my point of view, as someone very far outside the scientific community, seems like a reasonable enough thing to talk about, but that has nonetheless been rendered almost totally off limits. And that is the question of whether it's possible that the coronavirus that caused the current pandemic this coronavirus, not previous coronaviruses, but this one, whether it did not jump directly from animals to humans, for instance, from bats, but was perhaps accidentally leaked from a lab, for instance, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which happens to have been studying bat coronaviruses and applying a methodology that in an effort to better understand them and eventually protect against them, makes those viruses behave differently than other viruses and also makes them deadlier. Now, I go into all that detail because I think it's important that people understand that this is not just a random finger-pointing kind of gesture. There are very specific connections to potentially be made here. Um, so I want to talk about how each of you came into the public and scientific discussion around this question. Um, but first, uh, and I promise I'm going to stop talking momentarily, I want to pose two fundamental questions. And the first is why it's become so hard to talk about this. And the second is why it even matters whether we talk about why does it matter at the end of the day where this virus came from? And Philippa, I'll, I'll start with you there. Sure. Well, I think it's important to figure out what the source is um, so that we can prevent this sort of thing happening in future, uh, essentially, right? We don't want to have another introduction of this kind of virus. So we want to try to limit that risk. Um, and I guess that's, that's the key reason why there is such interest in the origins. Um, ar around the virus. It's, it's, it's so that we, it doesn't happen again. Alina, as early as January of 2020, you were skeptical of the premise that the virus had jumped from animals to humans in the Wuhan wet market. So tell us why you were skeptical and what you did about it at that time. I, I don't think that I was skeptical, so to say, but I, I thought that there should be more evidence gathered and also shared because 
in January of last year, they had collected hundreds of samples from the environment and from animals at the market, but details about what those samples were, whether they sampled live animals, what types of animals, we didn't have access to that. Uh, so I thought that evidence was definitely lacking. Um, and I thought that there were also other plausible scenarios of origins, such as perhaps from pre-circulation in humans elsewhere, not in Wuhan, or perhaps even from a lab. So why did it seem like this was suddenly something we were not supposed to talk about? I mean, if I'm remembering this correctly, I feel like sort of around, you know, March, April, May, sort of reasonable actors, non relatively non-controversial people were were talking about the possibility that this was that this scenario was in the mix. Brett Weinstein and Heather Hying, who are evolutionary biologists who are popular podcasters and have uh, you know, have a big following. Probably a lot of people who listen to this podcast are familiar with them. They were talking about it on their podcast um, in in non-conspiratorial tones. I think that's fair to say. Um, Philippa, you wrote about it back in May, and I don't think you got too much pushback. But um, can you just talk about what you were saying at that time and and what was what what the sort of climate of discussion around it was? Sure. Well, my engagement with the kind of origins question actually started uh, much earlier, um, uh, and it very much coincided with the first reports of, you know, this um, mysterious lung infection uh, in Wuhan already at the, in, in early January. Um, I, I'm, I'm there. I'm part of this um, you know, um, network of experts or uh, an email group, basically, which uh, talks about stuff that comes up naturally, you know, whatever comes up in the news and things like that. And we we email each other a lot. Um, and it's sort of um, a group that's, or a network that's built up of biodefense experts and policymakers and practitioners. And we, we began exchanging notes about this mysterious lung infection, right? And um, we're kind of a naturally suspicious group. And it wasn't long before questions were privately raised about the potential accidental or deliberate origins um, of it. And, and, and that wasn't conspiratorial. It's sort of standard practice for critical scholars that are trained to interrogate the information uh, that's presented to them or the different narratives that are presented to them. Um, and in my group, it's even more kind of standard practice because this group comes, you know, uh, from the intelligence, defense, and national security uh, community. So we were already pretty uh, critical of, of of the information that was was coming through, and we were asking questions. And, and in the beginning, like you said, there was also a lot of focus on on the kind of conspiracy theories that started coming out, linking the the outbreak to bioweapons. And in the beginning, I was very much involved in kind of trying to counter that narrative and say, you know, we can't be linking this outbreak to biological weapons. Um, that that was politically not factually motivated. Um, and, and there was a lot of uh, rejection, I think, rightly so, of those false narratives by journalists, by their editors, by academics, by the wider policy community. But what I think then happened, and this is where I'm getting to the answer of your question, is that a byproduct of that hard pushback against those early conspiratorial theories 
was that it didn't leave open even the remotest possibility of a non-natural origin, right? Um, and so everyone was kind of trying to counter this narrative that it could be linked to a lab or be be a deliberate uh, release. Um, and, and they did that to such an extent that there really wasn't this uh, space for a non-natural origin. And to my mind, that pen, the pendulum then had swung too far. Um, I, I thought it was really important that the possibility of a lab leak was really brought to the table. And that's when I uh, published my first article, which I wrote in, in sort of, uh, I guess, towards the end of April. It was published 1st of May, but it was really around the end of April. And it was when the, actually when the, um, the U.S. administration, the Trump administration, was pushing hard for a lab theory um, which is very, uh, which was an uncomfortable position to be in, right? But uh, I think as critical researchers, we are often countercurrent, and sometimes that we that end, means we do end up in these uncomfortable spaces. And so, I think that's sort of in the so what as you were saying, there were some talk about that in sort of May. There was kind of that was kind of being put on the table, but it was primarily, I think, put on the table by the Trump administration. Um, and then it sort of fell off the table again, following, I would say, the World Health Assembly agreement to hold an investigation, because then that, that then we were all just waiting for this investigation to get going. And what happened with that investigation? Uh, well, that is going on as we speak. There's, uh, you know, there was an agreement to hold this investigation. Uh, it took a long time uh, to agree the terms of reference um, or the um, agreement on how exactly that investigation was going to be conducted. Um, so that took a lot of time. Um, and so, so the investigation was agreed in, in May, and it's only now, um, you know, very end of January, beginning of February, that the investigation is actually on the ground in China. And again, why is it that people have such a hard time separating the idea of talking about the possibility of an accidental lab leak from the idea that you're accusing the Chinese of releasing a biological weapon? Is it because of Trump's rhetoric? If, if it weren't for that, do you think people would be more predisposed to uh, entertaining the complexity of this? Yeah, I think to some extent it is partly because, because of that. In the beginning, when there were all these conspiratorial theories, but I would, there was also, you know, deliberate misinformation, disinformation. Coming from where? Um, coming from. Um, uh, a lot of different countries were jumping on the bandwagon here, right? Um, um, there was also uh, also politically within the United States, but there was also uh, a lot coming out of uh, Iran, out of uh, Russia, out of China, of course, as well as elsewhere. So there was deliberate disinformation around this, and it sort of tangled up the narrative, tangled up um, deliberate releases, so biological weapons and secrecy and all these labs, was sort of tangled up with the idea of the possibility of an accidental lab leak, uh, which is not half as exciting as, you know, a secretive 
uh, weapons program. Um, and so I think in the beginning, these two were very entangled. And so also the minute you would suggest there was anything that, that the virus could have been originating from um, a lab in people's minds that then got connected with it being deliberate and a weapon and really far out, you know. I think that sort of still sticks around, that people then have a hard time separating these two ideas of one being deliberate, which is not at all what we're talking about here, and one being uh, accidental. Yeah, it just seems strange that people are so resistant to making that distinction because, you know, it's uh, an accidental leak. is It's not as sexy as like a grand conspiracy, but it would potentially give us a lot of information if we were able to <laughs> to learn from it. So I don't know why people wouldn't be like really hot to <laughs> follow that trail. Um, yeah, I think that, I think that's right. I mean, I, I, and it has huge implications uh, if there is a lab leak, it would have huge implications for the sort of research uh, that we uh, are currently funding as governments, uh, you know, or as, as countries, it would have implications for the labs that we build and for that risk benefit assessment that we go through. But um, I, I'd be interested to hear what Alina thinks about that, why these two ideas are so tangled up. I'd like to echo what Megan said. I think part of it might also be what the media chooses to focus on. So, for example, I think the person most famous for pushing the bioweapons theory now is Dr. Lee Meng Yen, who is the whistleblower who escaped out of uh, Hong Kong. And so, I mean, her story is very sensational, right? You've got Steve Bannon, you've got like Rudy Giuliani, you've got, you know, uh, Miles Bohr, uh, you've got Luther, you know, all these. Can you can you tell us the story? Like, in a, in a nutshell, for listeners who aren't familiar with it? Oh, yeah. So, okay, uh, Dr. Lee Meng Yen is this uh, postdoc who was working um, in, in Hong Kong, and she was uh, in one of these labs that was advising the WHO on, on the new SARS-2 outbreak at the time. And so her PI, according to her story, her PI had taught her to secretly do some research on SARS-2. Uh, at that time, uh, it was really hush-hush, right? So doctors weren't supposed to be talking about it publicly, so she reached out into her private network to get information about it. Uh, she eventually blew the whistle on human-to-human -human transmission a day before China announced that there was evidence of human-to-human -human transmission of this virus. And so she eventually fled to the U.S. Uh, with the help of Mouse Guo and Steve Bannon. Uh, and she's now holed up in some uh, you know, private residence in, in New York. But her story has been very uh, sensational. <laughs> it's the stuff of you know, a film or a movie. And so she, she fled all the way here. And she started talking about an unrestricted bioweapon. So she called this virus a deliber deliberately released bioweapon. Uh, and so that got a lot of media attention. And, and people said, you know, going into this really uh, shady story of, of Steve Ben trying to man manipulate her for his own political purposes. And this got a lot of coverage in the media. So I think, unfortunately, that, that really made the lab origins hypothesis seem even more extreme and even more conspiratorial <laughs> than it actually is. So lab escape, like something as unsexy as lab escape, just, just someone spilling a tube or, you know, getting accidentally infected, it's not as heart-pumping as, as listening to a story about China deliberately releasing this, uh, some sort of great world reset. 
It's close enough. Uh, so you uploaded your paper, Alina, on May 2nd, I believe, uh, to preprint site um, where papers are presented for peer review. Within two weeks, the mainstream media was on the story. There were articles about you in Newsweek and the Daily Mail. What happened to your life and in your career in the wake of all of that? Well, I think it was really shocking. Um and I told uh, I told Razip Khan my my story on this too, so that I lost a lot of sleep uh, because I, I was kind of really shocked by by how much uh, interest there was in this. I I mean it was quiet for two weeks, so I, at first I thought oh okay like it's getting a little bit of attention, but it's not that exciting. <laughs> um, I had no idea what was coming, uh, and 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 since then it's it's just been like unpredictable events one after another. So it, that preprint drew me into a whole world of, of looking into all of the evidence pointing to different origin scenarios. Um, it drew me into looking at the RITG-13, uh, bad coronavirus, uh, into the Mojang miners, into the pangolins, uh, into, into everything. So I, I think that was an accidental uh, event. <laughs> you got a lot of pushback from other scientists, um, in particular, somebody named Peter Dajak. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Can you tell us about him and what his response to your to your paper was? Um, I, I think it, it was ne- negative, but I can't remember exactly what he said. I think he had some issue with the word that I used, isolate. Uh, but actually, we checked the GenBank entry for RETG13 at the time. So RETG13 is this the closest uh, whole virus genome relative to uh, SARS-2. And, and this had been collected from a mine in 2002 uh, by the WIV, where they found that, sorry, they collected it in 2013, but in 2012, uh, a bunch of miners had, had suffered SARS-like illness. Um, so should we do that? Like, I got the dates wrong. Okay, so Philippa, I don't know if you want to jump in about Peter Dajic or the kind of political layers of all of this. But maybe, first of all, I want to ask you, what do we know about the work being done in Wuhan? Can you give us a brief history on the Wuhan Institute of Virology? And also there's there's a like a CDC lab pretty close by in Wuhan. So maybe we can talk about the differences and what you know about um, what's going on in, in the labs in either of those places. Sure. And that was really one of the things that I brought up in, in my first article. Um, I wrote it. It was kind of a two two part article. The first one really focused on the kind of the circumstantial evidence suggesting that a lab leak was a possibility, and the second one focused on the investigation and what I would what I thought would have to what you would need in order to have a credible investigation. And and one of the uh, large pieces of circumstantial evidence. Um, in this case, is that you know there is an outbreak of a, of a new coronavirus, which is very echoes a lot of the exact work that's going on in uh, these labs in Wuhan. So there are at least two big institutions in Wuhan that are working on coronaviruses. Um, one of these is the Wuhan CDC. And the other one is the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Um, the one that we hear the most about is the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and that's because they have a, um, uh, a, a 
lab which has the highest containment level. So the, it's a biosafety level four, which means that they work with some of the most dangerous pathogens um, that exist. Um, the Wuhan CDC, that, that other um, institute, um, works with coronaviruses also, but it only has uh, lower containment facilities. Um, coronaviruses, of course, are um, and generally not dangerous. Um, and so they're generally worked with at a biosafety level two. And uh, it's only when... Um, you know the 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 virus has has um, uh, mutated into things like uh, SARS or MERS or uh, SARS two um, that they are become very dangerous and must then be worked with at, at much higher containment levels. And so they were working with these um, pathogens. Uh, they were at the CDC, the Wuhan CDC, they were working with these uh, coronaviruses at, at level two. Um, and at uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, they were working with them at biosafety level four, uh, the highest level, because they were doing some manipulations um, with um, the viruses, which means they were, they were doing some um, what's called gain of function uh, research, which I guess I would just explain by saying that's kind of artificially forcing evolution of viruses, which means you um, you do it faster than you would in nature, um, and, and the end result is that you are uh, you could lose a lot of function, but you could also gain new functions like enhanced pathogenicity or enhanced transmissibility um, of um, a virus. So that's the sort of work that they were doing at the. Um, the high-level facility at the Wuhan Institute of, of Virology. Um, and then there's another thing that's often not spoken about, and that's the sort of fieldwork that they were also doing, because, of course, a lab leak kind of focuses our attention on the physical lab and suggesting that something leaked out of that lab. But another possibility is, of course, that you... Um, um, you 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 pick up an infection through uh, fieldwork, and both of these institutes were doing active um, fieldwork um, to obtain uh, coronaviruses, collecting coronaviruses from uh, live bats um, in many of these caves that we've heard about in the southern part of China. Okay, so I don't know if if either or both of you want to take this question. I mean, it's it's pretty pretty basic for you probably, but I think still people are curious. You know, first we were told kind of that the origin was bats, these horseshoe bats, then pangolins came up, um, civets, whatever those are, is that a kind of cat? <laughs> um, what are the reasons that those um, modes of transmission have been is it fair to say they've been eliminated or why are there holes in those theories? C can one of you speak to that? And what are the holes? I could uh, kick us off and I think Alina should then fill it in uh, much better. I mean, the, there, it's a possibility that the virus jumped directly from bats to humans, but it's um, more likely that it came through um, another animal. And so the focus has been on figuring out which animal that was so that we can um, 
you know, find out where the mutations happened, what the origin was. Um, and as you say, there have been um, a number of different possibilities here. Um, and early on, we, we heard a lot about the... Bats, but, pangolins. Well, no, the, whatever, sorry, pang- the pangolins, that's right. Pangolins, whatever they are. Yeah. They're like, they're like, we, first of all, we learned that there's such a thing as a pangolin, but I'm not sure even people know what they look like. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> they're very scary looking, which yeah, they're little scaly. To they're, the well, they're scaly. Yeah, they're scaly little animals, and they're now endangered because they're being used in, in China, right? But there are, so there's these emphasis to, to find the bat reservoirs uh, or, or to find the, the intermediate animal species and uh, different animals have been looked at and not just um, not just the pangolins, but also, um, you know, studies have shown that there are other animals susceptible to the, the virus, like just your domestic cats, um, also ferrets, hamsters, minks. Um, we saw with the earlier SARS virus that it was it was it came through civets. We saw with MERS that it likely came through camels. So there is this kind of search for where it came from, and there is a lot of emphasis in the terms of reference for the current investigation um, to look for that intermediate animal uh, species. Okay, so Alina, do you want to jump in? Do you have any thoughts on all of that? Uh, yes. So on on the animal transmission of SARS viruses into humans, I think experts even are quite divided on this, whether it can happen from bats directly to humans or whether uh, intermediate hosts are you know, close to essential for this process to happen. So for EcoHealth and the WIV, their work for more than a decade has been trying to hunt down this exact phenomenon of, of SARS viruses jumping from bats to humans. But as Recently, as September 2019, so like, you know, a month or two before COVID broke out in Wuhan, their their stance on it was that this is a very rare occurrence. So it was only after COVID broke out, then Peter Dashak changed his stance and said, oh, you know, one to seven million people each year are getting bad coronaviruses or bad viruses. Um, before that, in, in September 2019, they published a paper saying that it was a rare event. They had to look at people who were just living, you know, so close to bat caves that they frequently saw bats flying above them or, or dropping dead on, on the ground. And, and they said that even for those groups of people, the percentage of them that had, you know, antibodies to SARS viruses was as low as uh, 0.6 to maybe 2.7 if you go to people who have handled bats and, and things like that. So the idea that it goes from bats to humans, a lot of experts think that that it's a very unlikely scenario. So, so they, they think that it, it's more likely that it requires an intermediate host, something that makes it makes the virus closer to a form that can jump into humans. Uh, and, and so Philippa had explained that for SARS-1, there were a wide range of animals that could fill that role. And for SARS-2, we are trying to find that animal, uh, but there's been no sign of it. So despite you know, a whole year of uh, people looking, um, and, and again, we don't know what has been looked into in China. So we have no idea, again, which animals were sampled. We just know that they have been looking. So according to an interview that Xi Zhengli, uh, the PI of the lab at the WRV studying these bad viruses, uh, she and other groups in uh, Wuhan have been checking all of these animals in farms and markets in the province, in the wider province, and they found nothing. So no animals as the original source of SARS-2. Okay, so Alina, it sounds like what you're saying is that none of these animal theories 
are are panning out right now. And I want to ask you both, and I'll start with you, Alina. There are a number of things about this virus that are really pretty strange and specific to this virus. Things like it's not nearly as transmissible outdoors as it is indoors, and it's not nearly as transmissible outdoors as most other coronaviruses, if I'm not mistaken. This thing that children don't seem to get it, it attacks the body in ways that go well beyond respiratory distress. Have we ever seen a virus anything like this? Yes, I actually personally disagree with with this point of view that SARS two is is very special. Uh, I I think it's special for different reasons, but I, for many respiratory viruses, the, the same rules apply that it spreads better indoors in poorly ventilated, like crowded areas. Uh, and as for like people with healthy immune systems, like young people, it, it makes sense that you know the, the same thing applies to other viruses, including SARS one as well. That older people were more likely to to have a uh, poor outcomes from having SARS. So I, I don't think that these are uh, strange like signs of lab origins. Okay. Okay. Philippa, do you have any thoughts on that? Is there anything about the manifestations of the illness itself that might point to lab origins? Um, no, I don't think that's particularly strong circumstantial evidence. No, no. Okay. So what are the biggest reasons might link it to a lab leak? Like, what are the five top reasons, in your opinion? Well, um, as, I, as I said, a lot of this is, is circumstantial at this point. I guess my top reason would be um, you've got, um, you know, the coronaviruses are not endemic to <laughs> Wuhan. You've got um, these labs uh, working with coronaviruses. Um, you have labs that uh, the the sorts of research that's being done in those labs is very risky research, um, where you are deliberately manipulating these viruses to make them more dangerous. Um, in addition, we know that um, you know accidents happen all the time um, in labs around the world. We've uh, also at very um, high profile labs in the US. We see accidents happening all the time. Because um, I don't think people maybe are so aware of that. So at the um, CDC, for instance, um, a few years back now, maybe 2011, no, uh, 13, 14, maybe, there were um, a whole uh, range of lapses uh, involving Ebola, involving anthrax, even with a deadly strain of bird flu. Um, at the NIH, uh, you know, live smallpox virus was found where it absolutely shouldn't have been. Um, at the Department of Defense, uh, you have been, there have been um, live anthrax shipped to a number of different uh, labs, including outside of uh, the United States uh, to the UK, uh, as well as other places. Um, Department of Homeland Security has had breaches. So really very high profile labs have also experienced um, accidents, um, safety lapses. Um, you know, every, everybody experiences uh, this. So I don't think that's necessarily, a um, you know, um, an unusual thing in and of itself. But, uh, you know, that's part of this equation. Uh, it's one of the elements of the circumstantial 
evidence. Um, in addition, you have kind of, um, I guess I would say the kind of um, extreme measures that the um, that Beijing has gone to to control the narrative on what happened. So silencing of doctors, uh, pressuring family members of the first COVID patients not to speak out, but also the silencing of scientists, this taking down of um, web pages off the institute's uh, websites, uh, deleting databases, all of these kinds of um, um, extreme efforts to that that have been the street extreme lengths that officials have gone to to kind of scrub the record in a way. I think all of this adds to this sense that there there there's there's more there <laughs> than than what the impression that we're given. And what uh, Elena, I don't know if you want to take this. Uh, what is the incentive among the scientific community in the United States to uh, just kind of, give China a pass, just kind of nod along. I mean, we are doing an investigation now. Okay. But you certainly got pushback from a lot of American researchers saying effectively nothing to see here. So can you speak to what's kind of playing out politically? Uh, Does this have to do with funding? Does this have to do with people trying to kind of protect their research projects? Like what, how, how do you kind of piece this puzzle, part of the puzzle together? Yeah, I think this is a really touchy, <laughs> uh, dangerous topic to, t- to, to touch on. Um, I'd say that there are a lot of scientists who think that it could have come from a lab. It's, it's just that they haven't been writing papers and, and orchestrating <laughs> uh, letters to be signed and published in The Lancet. So I, I wouldn't characterize it as, as being the entire scientific community saying that you know, lab origins as con- conspiracies. Actually, most scientists have not even looked into the details of it. So they've just been relying on the uh, published scientific consensus, which a lot of uh, popular media have have described as, as saying that, you know, lab origins are conspiracies. So I, I wouldn't say that a lot of scientists have, you know, political motivations to, to not look into lab origins. Um, I, I agree with a lot of the evidences that Philippa uh, mentioned. Um, and I think as, as more time passes, so if we're one year in now and, and there's still no evidence of a natural origin of this virus. So when, when there continues to be no evidence of that animal to human spillover, no evidence of pre-circulation, then we have to start looking into alternatives, right? So Philippa and, and co-workers wrote this really fantastic guide to investigating uh, the source of any novel pathogen. And, and you have to look at evidence for natural origins. And if you cannot find any, then you have to start looking in, for alternatives to you to, to look for whether it could have leaked from a lab that's in the center of the city where it broke out. Um, and on that point, uh, there have been so many anomalies in these papers coming out from Chinese groups uh, regarding RTG-13, the closest relatives, uh, regarding the pangolin coronaviruses, uh, regarding the first papers that described SARS-2 from the WIV that didn't mention the furin cleavage site. So it's a very... Uh, interesting sites in, in, in the virus, it was flat out not mentioned at all in either of the two seminal papers from WIV on this virus. So there are a lot of uh, curious <laughs> observations about what they've decided to say or not say about this virus and, and its close relatives that I think incentivize scientists who've looked into the issue to actually uh, call for an investigation. 
Yeah, I, I just wondered if I could jump in here because uh, I agree with uh, Alina. Like, you know, we haven't there hasn't been any evidence of this intermediate animal. That's that's been uh, obvious. That's that's come out very strongly. Um, there's also no evidence presented that's incompatible with a lab leak. So all the evidence we currently have um, doesn't say, oh, it doesn't rule out a lab leak. So I think it still absolutely needs to be on the table. And just to, to kind of get back to your point about being in this uncomfortable space, you know, of um, there are many, uh, and I, again, agree with Alina, I think there are many scientists who in private either haven't thought very much about the origin or who agree that, yeah, it's a possibility, but they haven't openly come out to say it very loudly because um, it's just it has been related to conspira conspiracy theories and um, and fake news and all and, and alignment with the Trump administration. But um, I think we're that might be starting to change. I've seen uh, some people saying, oh, wow, the stuff that was to only talked about in private is now seeing seems like it's spilling out into a more public sphere that, yeah, there is this possibility of a, of a lab leak. Um, Another reason why it's really difficult to bring up this possibility is that, you know, it goes against very heavily vested interests of some scientists, um, of significant funders, uh, as well as of publishers who support potentially pandemic virus research. Um, and some of these are, are very established PIs, you know, and it's the NIH and it's the WHO and, um, you know, speak, speak. Uh, going up against that is tough, I think. Yeah, that, that was actually going to be my next question. So what is the relationship between the United States and China when it comes to this kind of research? The U.S. is funding some of it. We keep mentioning this person, Peter Dajic, who is affiliated with something called the Eco Health Alliance. Um, and I think that's connected to the U.S. Department of Defense. You know, his his immediate pushback against Alina when she posted her, her paper, it, it, it seems that she was, you know, right on his terrain uh, to a certain degree. And it would make sense that, that he would respond the way he did. But is there, is there any sort of simple way of kind of outlining who's who in this equation and, and whose interests are, are where and um, kind of who, who, who might be feeling the most threatened? Uh, I actually found a tweet that he, he made on May 17. His, he said that I didn't have enough data and I was riding on a wave of conspiracy to drive a higher impact. <laughs> okay. Now, who is who is Peter Dashuk? Who is he? Uh, he's the president of this uh, New York-based EcoHealth Alliance. Um, it's a nonprofit, but it draws a lot of funding from U.S. sources, not just the NIH, but also DAPA, I, I think. Does he or anyone else have uh, direct dealings with the research being done at the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Philippa, do you know this? Or Alina, if you do? Yeah, yeah, yes, he does. I mean, he, he is the president of this Eco Alliance. He's also a virologist um, who does, uh, who has, you know, got very vested interest in um, working with potentially pandemic pathogens, so these really dangerous pathogens that could cause pandemics. And he has had funding from the NIH to carry out studies 
related to pandemic pathogens. Some of these studies have been subcontracted um, through his organization to the Wuhan Institute of Virology um, to work specifically on coronaviruses, to do gain-of-function work on these uh, coronaviruses. So um, there certainly is a link uh, between him and uh, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and um, he has, um, you know, been very vocal in the debate um, about where the origin of the pandemic came from, where this virus came from, um, to the extent that he said, you know, the, the lab leak theory is just absolutely, it's absolutely not possible that it could be a lab leak theory. And that is now very problematic because he is one of uh, the team members on the investigation team. Um, and you, of course, you would want team members on the investigation to be open-minded. You don't want them, A, to have a conflict of interest and such heavily vested interest in that kind of work. And um, and secondly, you don't want them on record previously saying that it's an absolute impossibility that there is a lab leak. I'd like to add to that story too. So Peter Daszak and Shi Zhengli, who, who is the PI at WIV, they have had a long relationship with each other since the first SARS outbreak. So they were on a team together to track it down to the natural reservoir and bats. And ever since then, you know, the whole mandate of EcoHealth and all these global viral projects has been to find the next pandemic before it finds us. So all of their papers are about going out there, sampling the hell out of wild <laughs> animals, and then bringing it back to the lab and trying to see which ones are most likely to spill over into humans. So that's where they draw their funding on to try and uh, pitch it as a way to prepare us for the next pandemic. But in reality, has that been true? H have they have they done things to protect us from the next pandemic? I don't know. But this whole enterprise has drawn in like hundreds of millions of dollars. It's worth a lot of money. Are you and, referring and the to... the irony... Oh, sorry, sorry okay. Megan. But, you know, like the irony is they've been funded with millions of dollars to, as Alina says, go out, sample dangerous pathogens, mutate these viruses to make them even more dangerous, all in the name of making us safer from a pandemic to make us more prepared for this exact sort of pandemic that we're facing now. But the irony is that it is a possibility that the sort of work that they've been doing could be the cause of this pandemic. Are you referring to Xi Zhengli? Uh, she's the researcher in China. She's also known as China's Batwoman. Is she is she the one working with uh, Dashuk? Alina, is that who you mean? Yes. Okay. I, I want to talk about her because uh, she's quoted a lot in the New York Magazine article by Nicholson Baker. Um, I think you're, Alina, you're you're definitely in that piece as well. And Philippa, you may be too. It's a very long piece. You know, she's quoted as saying about how upon first learning about the virus, she was initially worried that it might have come from her lab. That was her first thought. She said, I lost sleep over this. Now, since then, she's taken to issuing really propagandistic statements like the virus is nature punishing the human race for keeping uncivilized living habits and to platitudes like she's you know she welcomes any investigation that would add to transparency you know alina you're you're an american researcher you're from singapore you're not in china i don't know how much you know about what it's like to be a scientist in china but what do you imagine is is going on there with her i mean i i don't think i could even begin to imagine it must be 
really uh, distressing to be in this situation. And I'm sure there's a lot of stake for her. So, I mean, if I was in her position, I, I don't know what I'd do. Probably nothing. Because people could be killed or sent to, like, gulags. So I, I don't I don't blame or judge any of the scientists. Like, they, they need to do what they need to do. Yeah, I would I would absolutely echo that. I think they're under a lot of pressure from, uh, you know, uh, people at their own institute, from local officials, as well as from Beijing, to make sure they follow the narrative that has been set out from uh, Beijing. Um, you know, and as that narrative changes, they also need to change what they're saying to follow that narrative. So I think that's what we're seeing here. What's the most generous way to read China's stonewalling? Okay, if it's not a lab leak, and this really is purely zoonotic, what could they be hiding exactly? Who wants to take that? Oh, I'll give it a go. Um, Well, you know, I suspect China has an awful lot of skeletons in the closet that they don't want to see the light of day. They don't want a very open investigation that can go anywhere, talk to anybody uh, in China. Um, But what I believe is really going on here is that um, it's primarily about controlling the narrative. Um, It is about showing that Beijing is in control, that it's delivering a successful response to this pandemic. and. All of the unknowns and uh, is difficult to make sure it fits into this narrative for them. And especially when you have people like scientists or self-made journalists um, going after speaking about speaking about what's happening on the ground right now because it conflicts with that narrative, right? And so we're seeing a lot of silencing of doctors, silencing of scientists, pressuring of family members, all of this of, of the victims. Um, or the, the the first victims, and and I think all of that is really about trying to tightly control this narrative to because it's becoming too unstable uh, f- for, um, f- for Beijing with these various loose ends that they've got to tie up, right? And so it really is about projecting that power that you are in control of the situation, both to your internal market, both to your um, constituents, your citizens, but also to to the world at large. Alina, do you have anything to add? Yeah, so I think middle of last year, actually now, some some other experts have started to float this idea that maybe China does already know where this virus came from, and I sort of think that that could be true as well. That you know, it's really risky to just resume normal life in Wuhan without knowing where this virus came from—a human pathogen that can create a pandemic of the scale. So. I do think that they may have already found out where this virus could have come from. Um, so in this scenario where you know where it came from, you, and, and China wants to, of course, you know, be a hero to the world. They want to show that, you know, now they're the ones helping all these other, other countries suffering from the pandemic. So for them, the question is, how can they best deflect any blame tracing back to them? And so at first in early, you know, 2020, they, they were floating the animal spillover hypothesis. So they were saying it was coming from the market, there was pangolins and stuff. But I think they've realized that even that origin scenario puts the blame on China. And so now we're seeing these more uh, 
creative <laughs> origin hypothesis, like cold chain supply or imported frozen fish or uh, multiple origins. So I think they're just testing to see what the public will accept, <laughs> trying to see what the world will, will buy as a new hypothesis that takes the blame off China entirely. And and I think actually I, I you're spot on, uh, Alina. Of course, and I think you see that in the terms of reference too that have been negotiated with China for the investigation. There you see a lot of uh, mention of the fact that you know the origin might not actually be in China. It could well be in other places. Um, so the investigation in China is really just to set the. You know, because it was China that first um, identified the the virus and first responded well to the virus, but it could well have been circulating uh, elsewhere in the world before that. So China is actually leading the way to show others how this investigation is going to go. And um, you know, uh, the the terms of reference talk about how the international team will develop study frameworks and materials, I'm quoting here, study frameworks and materials that may set the ground for origin tracing work elsewhere. Uh, it says, uh, and quoting again, the possibility that the virus may have silently circulated elsewhere cannot be ruled out. Um, so, and they're setting the whole investigation up as being important for further global origin tracing work. So it's really about, um, as Alina was saying, deflecting blame from China over to other countries, other countries that also had early cases like Italy or France or even the United States. Is there any evidence that it could have originated in another country, in Europe, something like that? I mean, where are they going with that? I think all the evidence at the moment points to China. Yeah, I second that the the sporadic papers that made it past peer review pointing to, uh, you know, cases in Milan or things like that or in Barcelona uh, before Wuhan like these these are these are really like insane hypotheses I just have to say it out there like I don't know how you would explain a SARS virus endemic to South China making its way all the way out to Barcelona you know one of the most like rocking cities on earth or, or to Milan another you know highly touristed area without having like explosive outbreaks before being uh you know leading to the initial outbreak in Wuhan so there's no coherent hypothesis or story here that could explain you know SARS to emerging in Europe before emerging in Wuhan I, I was just going to draw a parallel here to to you know disinformation and misinformation campaigns because that is exactly you know you don't need a coherent narrative to make people start doubting um, once you start hearing all these, well, it could be from there. It could be from there. How, how do you, how do you, how do normal people start to evaluate what what's reasonable and what isn't reasonable? So, in terms of a strategy to misinform people, it's not a bad strategy just to throw out what seem to be completely crazy strategies. You know, this has been part of the Russian uh, disinformation playbook for years. Um, and it's been sh proved to be effective. So, uh, yeah, the theories are absolutely wild. There's absolutely no evidence to show that the virus could have originated outside of China. But by continually questioning and throwing out new crazy theories, people will start to doubt. Yeah, I think that this is a this is a PR problem for China that's not only outward facing, so a story that they want to sell the rest of the world, but also a, a story that they want to sell their own country. So your own citizens, you know. They might be kind of on the edge right now, wondering how this virus got started, because 
if it did come from a lab, I think that would lead to unrest <laughs> inside Wuhan, in, inside China. Do you think that you know they're doing all this military secret research that could lead to outbreaks in your own city? So I think for China, it's been very important for them to to place the origins outside of China, say that it's not our own you know research programs or our own wildlife trade that, that led to these uh you know killer viruses. It, it's other countries, other countries' fault. Is there any evidence that China understands the virus more than anybody else and therefore they were able to treat it better? Like I'm remembering that moment, I guess it was over the summer when the the, the Chinese doctors arrived in Italy to, you know, assist with, you know, these overcrowded hospitals in this like, you know, catastrophic, you know, health emergency that was going on. I mean, what went through your mind when you when you saw the you know, here were the Chinese to come save the Italians. Like, how did that kind of sit with you, Alina? If you want to start, I think I think that they should be helping other countries to control this pandemic. That I mean, they have more experience because it started earlier in China, and they had you know a few months of experience before other countries. Um, whether it's heroic or not, yes, I, I think we have to acknowledge that yes, it, it, it's a good deed, right, to go and help other countries. Um, but I think it's also important for them to take responsibility for, for being the place where it emerged. So what we need now is for China to tell us how this virus got started. Like, you know, if they know, and I think they do, then the rest of the world needs to know as well so that we can prevent an, a repeat from happening, not necessarily in China, but other places. Because right now, I think the problem is that the world has demonstrated that we cannot trace the origins of a virus, even when there's a quite good chance of it coming from a lab. So this might incentivize other countries to also have their own research programs that are risky and in, in the knowledge that they won't be able to track down any leaks from the lab as long as they don't publish their viruses. So I think this sets a really dangerous precedent for the rest of the world. Oh, that's interesting. Philippa, you had talked about disinformation playbook a few minutes ago. What is the US's dis- disinformation playbook when it comes to these things? I mean, is this something that just sort of goes on with risky lab scenarios, no matter where you are? Well, the, the, the U.S. has a different history to disinformation. The U.S. Uh, invest, invests in technology as a response, whereas Russia has always invested in, you know, active measures, uh, in um, narratives, uh, and that's their level of expertise. So uh, there isn't so much of a U.S. playbook when it comes to um, disinformation. But I, I did want to come back to this uh, question about whether China understands this better and what that whole going to Italy to help thing was about. Um, of course, initially, and I, I still think they understand the virus to some extent better because they've had access to you know, the cases, to the samples. They've not been sharing their samples. They didn't share... Uh, a lot of the their initial investigation material with anybody. Um, so yeah, I do think they have a better uh, hold on uh, what went on. Um, and in terms of you know uh, going to 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 Italy, um, I think that's part of a larger. I don't think this is uh, heroic or a good deed. I think this is strategy. This is strategic movement um, from Beijing, where they are, have moved into the vacuum by the international vacuum by the Trump administration. America has not been on the scene, international scene for a long time. They've moved into that power vacuum um, and are trying to 
be seen as one of the global powers, which they are. And, um, you know, there is a new world, new world order coming. And um, uh, I think the move to go help others in this sense uh, should be seen as part of that. It should also be seen as, um, you know, um, as we also saw with the Ebola outbreak, um, obtaining uh, samples from other populations, um, testing their own equipment on other populations. Um, there's a lot of um, threads or elements in um, these sorts of big efforts by different governments. So there are lots of different agendas at play. Um, they certainly don't do it just because it's the right thing to do necessarily. It's not just heroics. Alina, do you have any response to that? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I think America has, in the past few years, kind of forgotten why it became, you know, the most powerful country in the world. It's not because, like, it was just really awesome by itself, but because other countries were relying on it, it had all these allies, like, it was the hero of the world. So the new, I mean, the the previous administration, the home, America first uh, policy, I think it was actually detrimental to America in that it, it lost all these relationships and, and alliances with other countries. So a lot of, you know, U.S. allies had to turn to China to beg for vaccines <laughs> and because America was so busy trying to get vaccines for itself. So I think it would be helpful if people realize that, you know, being a world power doesn't mean that you're just getting richer by yourself, but that you have a lot of friends in other countries. And to put a positive spin on that, you know, the rest of the world is now welcoming America back with open arms, um, hoping that America will play a more powerful role in terms of climate change and um, all of these bigger global challenges that we are uh, facing. But at the end of the day, um, there are now new powerful players on the international scene that, um, you know, that that they're not going to go away. They're only going to increase. And, and that is and that is difficult. Things are changing. I want to ask you both about the lockdown strategies. And I guess I'll direct this first to you, Philippa, but um, Alina, obviously, please do jump in. So China's greatest achievement during the pandemic, arguably, maybe not arguably, was demonstrating that it was capable of locking down the whole population. If China did ever want to release some kind of biological weapon and nobody is in any, no serious person is suggesting that that's what's happened now, but hypothetically speaking, if they did want to do that, if they wanted to infect the world to solidify their growing dominance, they've proved they can protect themselves because they can lock down. Um, it's the only major economy that's had growth uh, amidst all of this. So is that something that that you think about um, as a as a biological weapons researcher, Philippa? Um, I think certainly what we're seeing is that biology and genetics, particularly combined with uh, artificial intelligence and deep learning, is going to be um, a big um, strategic asset. In the future, both uh, American and Chinese and many others are investing heavily in research in this area. We are seeing that population genetics um, 
is uh, a valuable resource. Uh, looking, for example, at uh, Israel just recently, what they negotiated in order to get access to the vaccine was not just paying a higher price than others, but it was also, you know, bartering access uh, for the pharmaceutical company to their entire, um, you know, uh, health um, data set, the population data set uh, of their, of their, 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 um, of the Israeli population. And so, um, that is something that we we're seeing more of. Um, China was very um, successful in locking down because it implemented very authoritarian uh, measures. Again, we also saw them combining biology and artificial uh, intelligence uh, in technologies that we've never seen before. I mean, they, you know, um, when the first cases were first reported in in, in Wuhan, um, and they locked down, they carried out large scale remote temperature measurements of households in apartment complexes using drones equipped with infrared cameras. So people had to go out on their balconies and have their temperatures read by drones. Essentially, then you had drones patrolling public places, tracking whether people were traveling outside without face masks or otherwise violating quarantine rules. You had um, the Chinese police uh, debuting um, augmented reality smart glasses that kind of matched artificial intelligence capabilities designed to recognize individuals with potential COVID-19 symptoms. So these glasses had, you know, face recognition cameras um, that could identify and profile individuals in real time. And then they could record, uh, make photographs, they could video record them. Um, And this was, of course, um, available to the police. So we're seeing, and and, and then the introduction of the, the health code app, which is when they opened up after lockdown, the only way you were allowed to enter or exit your residential building was by swiping in and swiping out on this app with your phone. Um, you had to swipe in to get into a supermarket. You had to swipe in um, to get into the subway or a taxi or any other public space, right? And that app stored your personal data. It collected uh, your location data and all of that could be shared with the police. So. Um, they had a very authoritarian approach uh, to lockdown, which wouldn't go down well uh, in Western democracies. But still, we also implemented measures that, you know, a year ago we would have thought unbelievable. Yeah, I, I just want to add that, you know, I, I don't think that this was a bioweapon, clearly, but it's laid the expectations out for the next bioweapon <laughs> for when they're, when they're bad actors trying to do bad things. Um, because now they've seen that, there's some countries, unfortunately, including, you know, much of Europe and, and, and the U.S. that just cannot handle a pandemic, like both in terms of being uh, having the most uh, latest intelligence on it. Uh, they, they didn't have that. <laughs> they, uh, they couldn't enact uh, public health policies like coherently across the country or travel bans. Um, you know, they, they were always one step too late to, to stop the pandemic from getting bigger in the country. and so. There are other countries that have done really well without having to do these lockdowns. I mean, some countries have never gone into a lockdown. So if you look at places like you know Taiwan, Singapore, South Korea, like they didn't have to do these sort of uh, you know 
military wartime measures <laughs> to keep the cases down. And and they're doing really well now. I have, I have friends in these countries and they just, you know, go out wherever. Uh, they just have to wear a mask. But And why you know. is that? Is it because they were just able to split the difference between the chaos that we saw in places like the U.S. and the, you know, the authoritarianism of mainland China? I mean, what was the difference? What was the secret sauce there? They were somewhere in the middle, right? So they, they weren't on either extreme of complete freedom versus complete no freedom. So, um, And they had some experience with SARS-1 before. So SARS-1 was, was so scary. Uh, I remember being a teenager at the time when it, in Singapore when it broke out and people were really, really scared. Like, But from that, you, you learned. You learned what to do next time. And so I hope that places like the US will learn what to do next time. Like Taiwan did like best job by far. You could see them having baseball games, like you know, socially distanced, of course, but the stadiums were still full. And so it we just have to learn from that, you know, not to just rely on one source of information, even if it is the WHO, to have more people doing surveillance and intelligence gathering, um, and to have pandemic preparedness. So just having policies ready to go if if you've heard of even the outbreak somewhere else, just like getting the travel restrictions down. In terms of being able to discuss uh, the different hypotheses around the origins of the virus, you know, we're, I, we're talking a lot about how it's been discussed in the media in the U.S., but how how has it gone down in other countries? Like, are there are there more sort of nuanced, complex conversations going on in in the media in Europe, for instance, or is this pretty much across the board? People are reluctant to take this on. Well, I think in in, in Europe, it has the, the origin discussion has been less uh, polemical than it has in the states. Um, it you haven't had the same extremes, um, though it has to some extent also echoed the United States. So you've had uh, the main the majority of the focus has been on the natural a natural. Um, uh, you know, uh, this is caused by a natural outbreak or a natural spillover. Um, but I think that the the you know the the lab leak has been on the table, and I think if you look at where a lot of the media stories have come from, a lot of them have come originated from uh, the UK. The, some of the more critical uh, stories, so there has been a fairly a live debate in in Europe about the origins. Um, and we saw that also, I think, at the World Health Assembly, where the European Union very strongly um, made the case for having this kind of investigation, where, of course, the U.S. voice was fairly absent by that stage, have, pulling out of the World Health Assembly, I think, shortly after. Um but yeah, I think I think Europe has um where I'm based has has um has has not been very vocal, but it has been more vocal and it has been more accepting of other possibilities than um the 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 way the, the debate has been shaped in, in, in the US. And and Alina, you might know more about how the media debate has played out in, you know, Southeast Asia and and, and that area. Uh, actually I, I don't. I Homes, yeah, this sense a lot of people are not interested in the origins. <laughs> Elsewhere, just I'm not sure why, but maybe they just have assumed that it's just China being China with all the wildlife trade. You know, like the story that they've been telling since last year is that you know these are the uncivilized 
quotation marks, like uh, practices of people trafficking wild animals. So I, I don't get a sense that it's as hot of a topic as it is out here in the US, where it's become completely politicized. So, I mean, I, I shared with you both like this Fox News coverage of the story, and that's a very strong uh, finger pointing at, at NIH and, and uh, scientists, right, in the US. So I, I think it, it's definitely a different level of conversation here. Yeah, I I mean, I, I wonder, this is such an obvious thing to wonder, but how this discussion would be different if Trump hadn't gone around shooting his mouth off and fomenting conspiracy theories. Yeah, so right before we started this conversation, um, you shared a a video from Fox News um, really delving into the the different sort of um, funding channels and political ramifications of the incentive within the U.S. and China to to cover up any possibility of a lab leak. And, you know, it's frustrating because, you know, it's it, it was a 15 minute segment and it's the kind of thing that we need more of. But like it's on Fox News and The Washington Times is being uh, cited, which is a, a you know, very far right leading newspaper. You know, how does it make you feel, Alina, when you see your your story covered in places like the Daily Mail um, and not in the New York Times or in NPR? I mean, there was a very a very well done uh, feature in Boston Magazine about you, and I, I don't know how you guys felt about the New York Magazine story by Nicholson Baker, but I thought it was it was very well done. Um, I mean, does it frustrate you that you're not able to speak about this? to just a, a, a more general audience? Uh, I mean, first of all, I think actually the journalist from, from the Mail on Sunday, uh, Ian Burrell, he's been really fantastic. Like he, you know, allowed me to check my quotes for accuracy. He, he really wanted to talk to me about the science. So yes, there are some extreme news outlets on there that just like go to town on the bioweapons and you know, like have really irresponsible reporting. But I... I have met some really good journalists who, who are not just here like talking to me for soundbite or anything. Like they actually want to get into the details of me. Uh, and I've seen many good articles published on this, like including in, in CNET uh, by Jackson Ryan and, and of course the Boston uh, Magazine article by Rowan Jacobson. Uh, there's so many. <laughs> I've gone to the names of all these really, you know, really stellar journalists who are doing investigative work. It could go on for a long time. Um, but yes, I, I feel I feel frustrated that in the U.S. at least it feels like you have to pick a side. You have to, to pick like, am I a Democrat or conservative or Republican? Like, do I do I need to think about what my peers are saying? What's on my news channel? So I I think that's extremely problematic. That has been cast as as a you know a far right conspiracy, <laughs> or yeah. And and so I think there are a lot of people who have always uh, seen themselves as as, as science loving or, or informed people, like uh, they they naturally have to fall onto the side of natural origins, and I think that that is problematic for these investigations into the origins. I you also want to just make the point that you know Alina has also written in and engaged with uh, not just far right media. You know she's had a great article just out in the Wall Street Journal. She's in the Telegraph soon, and you know she she has engaged in in other forms of media. Um, but the the point your your point is right, Megan. You know we are ending up in a very kind of uncomfortable space. That's what it comes back to. Um, it is can be an uncomfortable space because some of these outlets 
are saying what we're saying. They're echoing what we're saying. And I mean, I think they're making good points. The, 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 um, the news, the Fox News clip that you just referred to, I mean, it was making absolutely valid points. Um, you know, it is easy to point fingers at others, including, um, you know, uh, Jinping, G, uh, Xi Jinping and, and Donald Trump for politicizing the COVID origins discussion um, and for diminishing any hope of, of a credible international um, investigation. That's that's easy. The hard thing to do is, is to take a look in the mirror. You know, um, it really is our own virologists, our funders, our publishers who are driving and endorsing the practice of actively hunting for viruses and the high-risk research of deliberately making viruses more dangerous to humans. And that's exactly the point that this Fox News um, segment was was talking about. And I think we do need to be more open about the heavily vested interests of some of the prominent scientists that are given um, these big platforms to make claims about the pandemic's um, origin. Um, I think we need to have this kind of more inclusive debate about the risks that we're willing to take as a society in the name of research that may, but more likely will not lead to, you know, unknown medical benefits. Yeah, I'd like to add to that too. I think it's kind of obvious to a lot of people that there's been a boom in the discussion of lab origins, like after <laughs> after we were sure that Biden was going to... Like know, in the last two weeks, literally. Yeah, yeah. Or even just once we were sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I'm not going to get into this politics, but like, uh, I mean, like, I think I think there was a whole period for the last year when a lot of, uh, you know, more mainstream uh, news outlets felt that it was not safe to talk about lab origins because it could easily have become politicized. And, and, you know, the last thing I think they wanted to do was to, to you know, give oxygen to another thing that Trump said. So I, I think that that's real. Like, there was a time when, when people didn't want to talk about it. And then it was only when we felt it was safe then more people started to talk about it, including scientists. I just want to say, you know, like, we rely on news to have a coherent societal debate about these bigger questions. And for sure, the whether the pandemic resulted from a natural spillover or um, from lab research and an accident, um, that is one of the big questions. But the origin question feeds into even bigger societal debates that we still need to have about the sorts of risks that we're willing to take in the name of research, right? Uh, other questions about the implications of building more and more high containment facilities, not just in the United States, but globally. Um, you know, these are expanding, the, these high containment facilities, biosafety level four facilities are expanding at an incredible rate. Um, does the majority of stakeholders, do the majority of people um, in the United States or elsewhere think that lab manipulations of potentially pandemic pathogens is justified? And do the benefits of virus hunting outweigh the risks? Should just a few people make those decisions or should we make them more democratically? Um, and then the big question, can we even do adequate risk benefit uh, assessments when both the risks and the benefits are uncertain? So I think it's important to engage with news media, both on the left and on the right, because we want we don't want people to be in their bubbles. We want we need to know 
how they think so we can and we can have conversations on both sides. What would it take for China to be forthcoming? And how would they know? What would be the definitive evidence that this coronavirus originated from a lab and accidentally got out somehow? Philippa, but how will we know? So um, I think um, from this current investigation, we will learn some new things, but I don't think we'll get proof of origins. Um, it's too late for that. It's too politicized. The terms of reference of this particular investigation are just too politicized. Um, so I don't think we'll uh, get any particular proof. Um, I think we'll be dealing with probabilities and likelihoods um, at the end of the day. You mean forever? We'll never know. Alina, what do you think? I'm a little bit more optimistic, but I, I do think that that's a strong probability that we just won't know for sure. Um, but I, I do think that there is a lot to be investigated and not necessarily even inside of China, but outside of China. And it's really just up to international leaders now, whether they have the will to set up parallel investigations rather than just the WHO and Lancet investigations. I think there's a lot of information we can find, but it's just, do we want to find that information or not? Well, Alina Chan, Philip Alensis, thank you so much for, for speaking with me here. I just, I think it's, um, I really appreciate your taking the time and I just really applaud your, your courage, especially you, Alina, because I know this has been, um, it's taken a toll on you and you've gotten a lot of, um, a lot of flack, sometimes in a in a probably pretty anxiety-producing, scary way. So um, I really want to thank you for that. And uh, just, I hope that more thoughtful uh, people can start having these conversations in good faith. Because, like I always say, if sometimes the smart people are smart enough know, to know when to keep their mouths shut, and this is one of these examples of things that like people are going to talk about um, sort of irresponsibly and um, uh, in inadequately. So I hope that uh, I hope that we can start having more thoughtful, responsible, uh, rigorous discussions about this issue. So thank you both for doing so here. Thanks, Megan. It's been good to talk. Thank you. That was my interview with Dr. Alina Chan of Harvard and MIT's Broad Institute and Dr. Philippa Lensos of King's College London. You can find links to their work on this show's website at theunspeakablepodcast.com. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, all the usual places. If you'd like to support the show, please consider joining its Patreon page at patreon.com slash theunspeakable. I'm running this ship pretty much all by myself. And as I wrote recently, it's kind of taken over my life. You can read the story about that on the Patreon page, by the way. So I really appreciate your help. I hope you'll tune in next week. I'll announce the next guest very soon on the website and all the usual spaces. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about up to 25% off grocery store prices. Oh, really? What's wrong with paying full price, huh? No, sir. I would not join BJ's Wholesale Club. 
Let's agree to disagree, Frank. Say you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card. Join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in Ross Township. Visit BJ's.com slash Ross Township or the BJ's Membership Center at the Block Northway. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover. And so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.